Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMJ podcast. My name is George Cooper. I'm a medical writer, podcast host and producer. And throughout this episode, we're going to be taking a retrospective look at the use of monoclonal antibody biosimilars in the treatment of cancer, taking a closer look at lymphoma and colorectal cancer. Together with my expert panel, we shall discuss their experiences with biosimilar products and debate the likely future uptake of biosimilars with the current available evidence in mind. I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Stacey Cohen, Associate Professor at the Clinical Research Division, Fred Hutch Cancer Centre, and Associate Professor at the Division of Oncology at the University of Washington. Also joining me is Dr. Jeff P. Sharman, who's Medical Director of Hematology Research for the US Oncology Network. Before we get started, this podcast was funded by an educational grant from Pfizer, who has had no input into the creation of this podcast. Right, lots to cover. To summarise, we'll initially start with a brief background to biosimilars within oncology, before moving on to discussing some of Professor Cohen and Dr. Sharman's experiences using biosimilars within the clinic, including some of the barriers they often face. We'll then finally take a look towards the future of biosimilar use in oncology. Uh, Professor Cohen, how would you describe a biosimilar to somebody who has never heard of one before? Sure. So first of all, thank you for having me. Um, So as I think about biosimilars, I'm thinking about opportunities where drugs have been created and hopefully a method that is more cost effective uh, to the community, um, though that may not always be the case on an individual level. Um, And we've all are probably more familiar with a generic drug as opposed to a trade drug. And in that situation, you have a compound that is being used as a drug, and they're able to replicate that compound and use it um, in a cheaper fashion. Um, However, when we're thinking about a biosimilar, this is more of a biological product. um, And so they have the drug of reference, or they'll call it the reference drug, and they're actually trying to make that same product in living cells, but it's not going to be 100% the same. And so that's why it's a biosimilar, but not actually the exact same product. I understand. So in terms of if you had to quantify it in terms of percentage, how similar are they to the generics that they're trying to replicate, would you say? Or is it hard to say and it vary from depending on the product? I mean, I think they're quite similar. The key, the key portions where that has the drug efficacy is, uh, you know, is similar. That is the same medication. So I think at all intents and purposes, we think of them as being able to be interchanged and used in the same way. Understand, Dr. Sharman. How are um, these biosimilars used, broadly speaking, within oncology? Uh, given your experience, right. So uh, again, thanks for having me as well. Um, you know, these these biosimilars. Uh, if I might start my answer a little bit from the last question, you know, there's there's a whole lot of work that goes into uh, determining what we refer to as biosimilarity, and so it's it, they're developed in a little bit differently than than reference products where. For the purpose of biosimilars, there are a large number of clinical development assays that, that you know, can occur in the laboratory where we're looking at amino acid sequence, glycosylation, molecular weight, mass spectroscopy. We're looking at assays uh, to show similarity uh, in preclinical. And then when we get to the clinic, what we're showing is similarities in immunogenicity, similarities in efficacy in a sensitive population. So there's really this large mountain of data that, that goes into creating something as, as a biosimilar. And in terms of how they're used in oncology, 
these monoclonal antibodies are very complex structures. It's not like recreating acetaminophen or even small peptide structures. These are very large uh, protein structures. And so it was felt for a long time that it'd be difficult to make products with enough similarity because even the temperature and the um, you know, manufacturing facility can influence the glycosylation patterns and, and, and so forth. So there's, there's a lot of challenges to overcome, but I, I have to say it's pretty impressive that they've been able to do so. And how are they used in oncology? Well, you know, I think as, as Dr. Cohen pointed out, we're using these in many of the same ways that we use the original reference products. So for those of us who treat a lot of lymphoma, we're um, using anti-CD20 antibodies in our patients with um, lymphoma, both uh, intermediate, low grade, well, really across all, all grades, based upon the data that's been, been generated to lead to the approval in the first place. Understand. And uh, Professor Cohen, do you have a, a similar experience um, using sort of biosimilars within your practice uh, in the oncology space? So I am a GI medical oncologist, so I primarily see colorectal cancer. And there's two main areas when I tend to see this. The first is instead of bevacizumab, some insurances require the use of a biosimilar. So that's um, a monoclonal antibody against VEGF or vascular endothelial growth factor. And the other main instance that I'll see it is for the use of GCSF, um, which is a growth hormone trying to stimulate white blood cell formation. So those are the sort of the two main areas. Most of the chemicals that I use in the form of chemotherapy does not really have a associated biosimilar, but those two, uh, two medications, bevacizumab and filgrastim and the associated biosimilars are where I'll encounter it in my practice. Understand and and um, Dr. Sharman, with, within your practice, are there any other monoclonal antibody biosimilar products in cancer that you that you are familiar with, other than the ones that you've already mentioned? Sure, you know, wearing my my uh, lymphoma specialist hat, uh, the anti-CD twenty biosimilars predominate, but we're also seeing this in the uh, HER two space, breast cancer typically, and some GI malignancies. You know, we also are using. Some of the re- growth factors, so red cell growth factors, we, we see biosimilars as well. So uh, there's a variety, and, and I think that the role will be expanding. Of course, in rheumatology, there's some of the anti-TNF drugs are, are being utilized. Those don't so much influence my practice per se. From an outside perspective, it, it feels that it's a, um, a growing group of, of drugs that are being used. What role do you feel biosimilars play within healthcare practice um, currently? Do you think that it's a, it's a growing role? You know, I think that, that uh, what we've seen in statistics uh, or, or market analysis, maybe the better way to put it, is these have really caught on strongly in Europe, where I think that there's a lot more scrutiny and oversight of uh, payment models. I think in the United States, where payment models can vary from one patient to the next, uh, I think that there's been a slower uh, overall growth, but I think that that growth is happening. And I think the degree to which uh, individual practice um, relates to their various payer mix, um, as, as Dr. Cohen mentioned earlier, sometimes it's these are mandated uh, interchanges, sometimes less rigorously enforced, but I have felt comfortable using them uh, really interchangeably without, you know, interchange is a very specific term I have to be careful mm. with because they, they don't have a level of, of, of approval that leads to interchange, but mentally I, I envision them that way. And Professor Curran, when you approach using 
by similar treatments for, for your cancer patients. Um, how, how do you go about that? Is it just the case of considering perhaps the insurance um, level of insurance your patient has? Is there a discussion there with the patient when you when you come to prescribe? I think that's a great question because I see biosimilars as something that adds a lot of complexity to the medical staff and the medical system, but not one that we necessarily translate out to our patients. So if I'm discussing with a patient, um, for example, bevacizumab, I will discuss that that is the drug that I'm going to use. Now, they may get a different form of it. They may not be getting Avastin, they may be getting Zerabev or whatever other formulation, but that's not really something that we end up discussing too much with our patients. And I think that may be part of it in that in my own institution, we tend to use the generic name rather than the trade name. So I think, you know, we sort of think of it as all the same drug. And so we'll end up just sort of saying, this is the drug that you're on. And, you know, the exact iteration of that probably is less relevant, but it does add a lot of complexity to the medical system. So you know, I am lucky in that I am positioned in a system that has infrastructure within our pharmacists of looking into our prior authorizations, running things through insurance, getting approvals. But, you know, especially as you think about take-home medications like filgrastim and other growth factors, we not only now need to think about is the drug approved for the indication, we also need to think about which pharmacy we're permitted to dispense it from. So if we're lucky, we can dispense it from our own institutional pharmacy. But more often, insurance will require a specific mail order pharmacy, which just adds complexity and getting the patient to have drug in hand and, and time. And now we also have to think about what formulation of the drug. So, you know, if our pharmacy may have one on hand, but we need to have the one that is approved by the insurance. And so it just adds more and more layers of trying to figure out how do you effectively deliver the treatment plan that you intended to the patient. And I think it becomes increasingly difficult for the medical staff and the people that are sort of behind the scenes to be able to deliver the treatment that they intended. Have you had a similar experience, uh, Dr. Sharma, within your practice? Yeah, I think those are all uh, really good points uh, uh, presented by Dr. Cohen. And, and, you know, I think that, that sometimes sometimes it creates questions from the patients when they're either pick up on a name or maybe they on online in chat rooms and so forth. And they, they recognize one drug name, but maybe not the other drug name when, in fact, it's the same drug and biosimilar mm -hmm. drugs. And so sometimes it requires some explanation. And I haven't found those to be huge barriers. It's more of a nuisance, <laughs> you know, <what> I mean? <laughs> uh, just that, that, you know, it, it just does work at multiple levels. It does add complexity to the care. I mean, I think the overall intent, of course, is to reduce cost, uh, which is beneficial. That's, I, I feel very positively about that, but it does come with, with the challenges uh, as well outlined by Dr. Cohen. Of course. I, w I wanted to ask both of you what you feel the general consensus is amongst you and your, your colleagues and your peers around the use of uh, monoclonal antibody similars within, within practice. Is there a general feeling that it's, as you highlighted earlier, Dr. Sharma, that it, it's sort of slowly growing, they're becoming more prominent, or is it still a little bit more, the use isn't as uh, readily kind of um, accepted as, as it could be perhaps? You know, I, I think one area in, in lymphoid malignancies, it's a little bit different from colorectal cancers, as I'm thinking about the use of bevacizumab, and, and maybe Dr. Cohen will correct me on this, but, you know, in, in follicular lymphoma, frequently we're dealing with, with palliative intent therapy, and, you know, patients are oftentimes going to do quite well for, for many, many years. I don't think that the 
level of consternation about uh, biosimilar adoption doesn't uh, enter follicular lymphoma all that much. But when we talk about diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which is either curative or a fatal diagnosis, it's a one where the stakes of therapy are considerably higher than, than follicular lymphoma. I do feel like uh, some institutions have had some reluctance to take up biosimilars in that indication, and there's been more pushback in that area. Keep in mind that, that many of the studies demonstrated biosimilarity were conducted in a low-grade lymphoma population. And so, you know, there has been some of those tensions in, in, in settings where you're treating with curative intent. But Nonetheless, I, I do still feel like the momentum is building towards increased adoption of biosimilars in that space. It's just slower uh, in, in settings where, where the stakes are higher. What do you think is predominantly driving the, the sort of reluctance that you highlighted um, a little bit there, Dr. Sharman, among uh, physicians to, to use biosimilars uh, within their oncology practice? You mentioned that perhaps the scale of the of some of the studies that have, have looked into them. Uh, are there, is there anything else that you think could be causing this potential pushback? Well, I, I, I think it's I think that that's specific to the diffuse large B cell lymphoma population, where the consequences of altering the sort of treatment mix potentially have higher stakes than it would in, in lower grade disease. So I think it's, it's simply that in that setting with curative intent, there has been a higher level of hesitation. I think as people have become more familiar with biosimilar and, and seen their comparative efficacy in a multitude of studies and use them in other settings, I, again, I think that that pushback, if you will, is, is diminishing. I see. And uh, Professor Cohen, within the uh, colorectal cancer space, well, what's your experience in terms of facing this sort of reluctance? Is it similar within your practice, would you say? Yeah, I think um, the the term of calling it a nuisance, I think, is a fair way of putting this. It's, it's a hurdle that we have to jump over. Um, of all the ones that we deal with in the complexity of medical oncology practice, I would not say that this is the one that bothers me the most. Um, it's more of something that I think we've learned to adapt to. It's an interesting point about this idea about whether we can ensure that a biosimilar can offer the same efficacy. I mean, I think that intent is there, but there's so much individual variability. It would be very difficult to to prove, I think, one way or another. And I, I think we're all reticent in oncology. If we have a patient who we think is potentially curative, of course, we want to do everything we can to put the odds in their favor. But it hasn't been something that I have particularly worried about. I've just used them interchangeably and moved on and kind of dealt with bigger and worse things that we have to take care of. Within your practice, are there ever any obstacles that you come up against that prevent you from prescribing the biosimilar that you may believe would be the best for that patient at that particular time at all, Dr. Sharman? I think that the system actually is geared towards towards the use of biosimilars uh, on account of reimbursement uh, favorability or, or cost favorability, I should say. So uh, I don't find barriers to using the biosimilar. If anything, it's probably the other way around. Uh, barriers to using reference product are probably more abundant. And, and uh, Professor Cohen, is your experience similar? Yes. I mean, I have not tried to fight for the use of the reference product instead of the biosimilar. We have just largely accepted whatever insurance tells us. But it is a funny system when the patient's medical insurance is dictating what we're actually delivering to the patient rather than the medical team, um, because it 
implies a level of trust that the insurance has made a choice that is about efficacy and not just about cost. But you know, they have they have different goals than than we have. So it's a little bit of a funny setup, but I have just prescribed whatever was the approved biosimilar according to the patient's insurance. I see. And within your practice, who who makes the decision on this on the switch from the perhaps the generic to to the biosimilar? Is that just something that you you decide? You know, I think uh, oftentimes, as as uh, Dr. Cohen said, we'll talk about a regimen, whether it's Archop or Bendamustine rituximab or or so forth, and we reference the generic name of the drug. And as Dr. Cohen pointed out, oftentimes on the back end, what's happening is the pharmacy reaches out to me or the the billing office reaches out to me and says, "Hey, this is the product that's actually approved by this." patient's insurance and the, our, our pharmacy team will, will, will help make any necessary adjustments and so forth, or, or we'll do that ourselves. So it's really not all that much of a, a challenge. You know, sometimes it's just a matter of, of how we enter the orders in the electronic medical record, but oftentimes that is guided as, as pointed out previously by payer considerations. And we, we spoke earlier on this podcast about the, you know, the potential cost saving, um, implications of, of biosimilars i mean healthcare costs are at an all-time high do you think that the adoption of biosimilars like offset the a lot of these costs for the patient you know the rituximab franchise has always been uh, a fairly uh, sizable franchise in terms of the total dollar value on a per year basis um, you know if we look towards the the future i go here just because these are numbers that are sort of fresh in my mind you know it's estimated that pembrolizumab generates about $20 billion in sales per year. And the entirety of the PD-1 space probably uh, is closer to $60 billion a year. And so as these drugs uh, become uh, biosimilars, any percentage off on that can actually have enormous impacts on on budgets. So, you know, I think that that Bevacuzumab uh, had a history of generating a fair bit of revenue. And I think that we're not seeing these come down in costs similar to like generic small molecules, but you do see on the order of a uh, 30% savings to healthcare systems, perhaps more depending upon on the exact environment when biosimilars are able to be adopted. See, and Professor Cohen, within the colorectal cancer space, do you feel like the potential cost saving implications is something to be excited about? Definitely. I mean, we know that oncology care is way too expensive. And, you know, if patients are paying a proportion of even a, you know, even if they pay 1% of their treatment costs, that can really be an astronomical amount as they go for several years of therapy. So I think whatever we can do to cut down on costs to the system and to uh, to the patients themselves is, you know, I support that. I think that. You know, I've had patients tell me I'll mortgage my house if you give me a drug that's going to be efficacious. But, you know, that's really hard to <laughs> to say. I would never want someone to actually be in that situation. So I think we have to realize that these are high stake situations where patients are investing quite a lot of themselves that we know from financial toxicity literature that many patients who even those that are well insured in our system experience a lot of financial stress and loss as a result of cancer therapy. So we really do need to look for opportunities to cut down on costs. And I think that this is one great avenue for that. It seems like a, a huge positive um, in the argument for the use of biosimilars. Professor Cohen, what, what do you think is still missing in the, what, what the missing piece of the puzzle to convince uh, clinicians to, to adopt uh, biosimilars more than they are currently doing so? 
Well, for me, it hasn't been too much of a hurdle. So I will say that um, I've just sort of rolled along with this as they is a new trend and am supportive of it. So I hope that, you know, like many things in medicine, sometimes it takes a little bit to have dissemination of new information, but, you know, I hope everyone gets there. So it just may be this comfort level in time. It's not something that we had encountered 10 years ago, but now something that we're doing on a regular basis. So I, I think that it's going to be a trend that is adopted and probably more widespread if we can demonstrate that it's effective for everybody. That sounds uh, fair enough. And Dr. Sharman, do you, do you believe that there are any important uh, knowledge gaps uh, remaining within the use of biosimilars for, for patients with cancer? That do you, Are there any resources or um, yeah? do you think where, where are the gaps in the knowledge that are preventing the, the uptake, would you say? You know, I think uh, in a lot of ways, oncology progress is driven by the headlines, right? And when we have some new cancer therapy or some new treatment modality that improves or increases overall survival, that gets uh, splashed across the the various trade journals and and so forth. I think that this is a product that, uh, or these products don't necessarily generate those same headlines because we're not so much moving the science of cancer treatment in the same way, right? What, really what we're doing is showing scientifically, it's still a very interesting point. Uh, I'll tell you, um, uh, I had worked as a uh, fellow in the laboratory that had been responsible for the creation of rituximab. And I remember early on uh, working on some of the biosimilars, talking with probably the person who could be credited with with the creation of rituximab and and early on in the process said to me, you know, there will never be a generic rituximab. It's impossible. You know, it can't be done. And, you know, here we are now with, with several approved um, and a multitude of other monoclonal antibodies uh, also having this biosimilar moniker. I mean, at the time, biosimilar wasn't even a, a term that I knew to be around or available. And so I think, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a paradigm shift that's occurred over the last, say, 10 to 15 years, but it's done so kind of somewhat quietly, you know, and it's happened on the backside of the headlines. It doesn't necessarily move the, you know, it's not the ASCO plenary session where, you know, we've introduced a new treatment modality that entirely changes survival. So I think it's, I think it's one that hasn't necessarily been at the forefront of treating physicians' minds, but I think as people become more exposed to biosimilar use and gain comfort with it, that those barriers will diminish. I'm really interested to hear both of your thoughts on where you see the fields changing, say, within the next five years. Professor Cohen, I'll I'll start with you. I see this as something that we're going to see more and more and drugs being approved all the time. And I think that, you know, it's already been referenced, the immunotherapy world is hugely expensive. And I think more and more opportunities to cut down on some of these costs will be welcomed. The only thing that I can foresee that would ever throw this off its track is if there was ever proof that a biosimilar turned out to be less effective than the reference product, that could put a real halt in the trend. But outside of that, I see this as something that we're just going to see increasingly. And Dr. Sharman? Yeah, I, I think it's a great point. And I don't know, I don't know what would trigger that. I mean, I think that there's, there's, um, I think that the biosimilar world has to really maintain a high degree of uh, integrity, uh, because I think that that any 
anything that appears to be a shortcut could be very damaging uh, to the field uh, and and impact across uh, multiple products if if that were were ever to to occur. And you know, I think that that um, we have seen some biosimilars where manufacturing issues were potentially a risk to the development of the product. And, and it, it's, it's, a, it's a field where when we're dealing with survival of patients and we're making decisions that are in many cases informed by cost decisions, the level of integrity uh, for, for the entire process has to be uh, squeaky clean. Um, Professor Cohen, just before we finish, how would you say summarize your stance and what, what is your perspective on, on the use of uh, monoclonal antibody biosimilars within your practice? At this point, it's just part of current medical oncology care. So it's um, one of the complexities that we work with. I am been doing it on a regular basis and it's just the new normal, I think. The new normal. Do you echo that statement, uh, Dr. Sharma? I do. Yeah, I, I, I feel very comfortable using these uh, back and forth without uh, much issue. And, you know, I, I think with the, the growth factors, it's it's easy to see it work, you know. And mm. so I, I think that does build confidence when when, you know, if we're if we're, for instance, uh, prepping somebody for stem cell transplant, we have to get them mobilized and you can do that with a biosimilar it's such a direct endpoint where you can where you can see it happening that that builds confidence in the system. I think, of course, with the rituximab, you can original studies that that showed I don't want to say non inferior, but but sort of uh, very similar overall outcomes with with uh, monotherapy. That that really does build a lot of confidence that that these drugs can function in in their stated capacity as a biosimilar. And would you, is there any parting advice that you would give to your fellow colleagues, some of whom may be listening to this podcast, who want to learn more about um, best practice when prescribing these biosimilars, uh, Professor Cohen? Any educational resources that you're aware of? Um, Unfortunately, I don't have any resources to share. For me, it's been something more of a learned on the job trend. So um, where I have learned the most is from my pharmacy colleagues who've been able to keep me up to date on what the new trends are and just where our limitations are. Mm. One other thing that I wanted to add as we think about the complexity is I'm involved in clinical trials and we have noticed that sometimes the trials will specifically say you need the reference product. And so I have noted a trend that some trials have had to go back and be revised to permit the use of biosimilars when the specific product was being given as part of standard of care. And have you been involved in any trials yourself, Dr. Sharman? Yeah, I've seen that happen. In fact, you know, oftentimes when we're working at the the level of, of clinical trial design, that's feedback we've given to sponsors to say you either have to provide the reference product mm. or permit the uh, use of biosimilars, you know, it's, it, it is something that comes up in, in, in clinical trials for sure. And that concludes today's discussion. Thank you very much to my guests, Professor Stacey Cohen and Dr. Jeff P. Sharman for joining me today and sharing their knowledge and expertise with our audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We release a new episode every Friday, as well as plenty of bonus episodes like this one. Until next time, take care and goodbye for now.